2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 is going to be our text here this morning. My goal is, I, I, I think I admitted this in the Sunday school hour, but I'm going to try out on you guys my Christmas sermon, right? Christmas Day this year falls on Sunday. And so we're putting together a special Christmas service uh, over there uh, in, in Nevada. And so this is the sermon that I've been uh, stewing on in preparation for that. And so y'all are my guinea pigs, all right? You're going to hear it first. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, I want to talk about the gracious gift of Christ. The gracious gift of Christ. And it'll really be a focus on this verse uh, primarily. We'll tie in many other passages and thoughts, but this will be our, our text that we're going to look at. And of course... It's so appropriate for this time of year because everybody loves a good gift, uh, and the anticipation and enjoyment of gifts is one of the things that makes the Christmas season so special. In fact, while we were here, uh, we often will do over the Thanksgiving holiday, we'll do a, uh, a little birthday celebration for my daughter Christy because her birth, birthday is December 1st. And, uh, but that saves Grandpa a trip that way if we're already over here for Thanksgiving and we do a little birthday thing. And, and you know, so we just did that a couple of days ago. And uh, Christy is just like every other kid in the universe, right, who has a, a gift coming their way. They are excited about it. They love birthdays. They love Christmas because of that joy uh, and anticipation of what they will find, what they'll have in that gift. And it's, it's, a gift is very important for a variety of reasons. But if you study, for instance, the New Testament, particularly the Greek language, you'll discover that there, there are several synonyms that exist, but one of the words in Greek for the word give is charizomai. Do you see that? And what's interesting is that particular word, charizomai, give, the verb give, shares the same root as the word grace, charis. But it also shares the same root with the word joy, kara, as well as Thankfulness, Eucharistia. In other words, if you study those four words in Greek, they all share a similar root. Greek is, uh, Hebrew is even more this way, but Greek will often share multiple words, will have a, and it's called a word group, where there's a, there's a core idea, and then you have a bunch of different words that kind of, you know, like spokes on a wheel, they come off of that root idea, that core idea. Well, here's a good example of it. All of these words are interrelated. Give, grace, joy, and thankfulness. In other words, you could rephrase it this way. God evidences his grace by giving us gracious gifts, which in turn produce joy and thankfulness in our hearts. That's the way it's supposed to work. God is a God of grace, but he evidences that grace in a lot of different ways, but primarily in being a gracious giver. He gives us a gift. And the gift is a way of saying, I love you. Right? You've heard this before, perhaps. It's, uh, I, I do find it helpful, though it's often repeated. When I do marriage counseling with folks in, in my church, I will often talk through how showing love is, you know, absolutely important. But sometimes that's an abstract idea. And people are like, well, okay, I love, you know, I, I love somebody, but how do I show that love? Well, classically, there's come to be known five, you're familiar with them, love languages, right? Five love languages. And all they are is ways where we demonstrate tangibly, we demonstrate our love. Gift giving is one of the five. Can you name the other four? I'm not going to put you on the spot. But you have words of affirmation. Say it. 
I love you, right? Words. Second, acts of service. You, you do something to serve them, help them, take a task off their plate, whatever. You're serving, acts of service. Quality time. Number three, just spending time together, right? Then you have gift giving, right, where you give a gift. And then what's the last one? I'm on a touch, physical touch. Give a hug, right? Give a kiss if it's your spouse. If it's your brother, slap them on the, you know, not the face, but on the shoulder, right? Just say, ah, I love you, bro, right? Whatever, right? That's the idea, is, is those are just tangible ways that have classically come to be known as the five love languages, but the idea is that they're how we express our love. Well, God is a God of love and grace, and he has, ex- he has expressed that. He's, he demonstrates it. He gets it out. He vents his gracious character by giving good and gracious gifts. So today, what I want us to consider is the gracious giving nature of God revealed particularly by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, again, our key text is 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. If you've got your Bible, let's read that together. And then we'll, we'll look at just uh, the, the verse in its three main parts. And we'll just kind of subdivide it into its three main thoughts. All right, so 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Isn't that good? I love that. It's like a one-verse summary of the life, work, mission of Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Now, before we look at the verse itself, recall this text in its context. If you're not familiar with the book of 2 Corinthians, then this may not you know, be immediately intuitive to you. But this marvelous verse that we're studying here today comes to us within the context of Paul's plea for graciousness from the Corinthian believers. In other words, if you're going along in the book of 2 Corinthians, you get to chapter 8, Paul is, is right in the middle of a very specific agenda. And that agenda helps us understand why he couches this particular verse in that context. For instance, or in particular, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is Paul appealing to the Corinthian believers to contribute to a a collection, a monetary financial collection from the Gentile churches that was meant to help provide financial support for the Jews in Jerusalem. There's lots of reasons for this. But the Gentile churches were, uh, Jerusalem had undergone a famine and they were, the church there, the believers in Jerusalem were hurting financially. They were having a hard time sustaining themselves at this particular point. And Paul is, is he gives them a number of reasons why the Gentiles ought to step up to the plate and try and help out the Jewish, their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. He talks about how the gospel, you know, came through the Jewish nation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have experienced the love of God because uh, of, of God's promises that he made to the Jewish nation and the fulfillment of those promises, etc., But in particular, our text is evidencing how Paul, in order to foster their graciousness, in other words, to give them a spirit of gratitude and and an ability or even a desire to be gracious in return, then Paul points them to the infinite graciousness of Christ. That's his point. He's using this as a model. He says, you should be gracious in giving because look at the gracious giving nature of Christ. Look at what you have been given. 
And so if you have been given infinite wealth in Christ, don't be stingy in giving your monetary wealth to help those in need. Right? That's his point. So to elaborate on the grace of Christ, Paul urges us to consider three proofs, if you will, of Christ's grace. Three proofs of Christ's grace, which unfold for us the three distinct stages of what you might call redemptive history. And you can see it really clearly in the verse. Here's your three big thoughts. We see the grace of Christ in these three big thoughts, right? He announces in the first part of the verse, he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his assertion. That's his thesis statement, if you will. Christ is gracious. But how do we know that? How, how does Paul prove that to us? Three simple ideas. Number one, he was rich. But number two, yet for your sakes, he became poor. And then number three, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. In other words, you take those three ideas and it plots for us the course of redemptive history, you might call it. So I want, as we consider these three big ideas, I'm going to rephrase them in these three ways. All right, this is what we're going to look at for the next few moments here this morning. Number one, I want to consider the riches of Christ or the resplendence of heaven, that though he was rich, and I know I was kind of stretching for an R word, forgive me, but there's a reason for it. I'll, I'll define resplendence in just a minute if you're not familiar with that word. But the resplendence of heaven, I want you to consider that for just a minute. What was it that Christ left in order to go from rich to poor? Right? You will never appreciate who he is and what he's done for you unless we first understand the wealth from which he came. So I want to consider the resplendence of heaven. Number two, the rigors of the incarnation. What does it mean when it says he became poor for us, right? I want you to consider that. The rigors of the incarnation. What is it that he gave up? But then third, that last part of the verse, I want us to consider our riches or the riches of our inheritance. He became poor so that we might become rich. So with those three ideas in mind, that's just going to be our thought flow for the next, oh, 35 minutes that we have together, just to contemplate those big ideas. All right. Now, first, let's unpack that first concept, the resplendence of heaven. Now, I know I was, I was stretching just a little bit to get another R word in there, right? Alliteration is just, it's helpful. I like it, all right? But resplendence, I struggled with this word for a little bit, but then, or to find an R word, then I found resplendence. And I'm like, oh, that's saying what I'm trying to say. If you don't know what that word means, it actually comes from a, uh, it's a late Middle English word, but it derives from Latin. And it's actually an intensive word. In other words, it's made up of two parts, re and splendere in Latin. To be splendorous or splendere means to glitter, to beam, to be bright, to be shining, to be beautiful. But then that re in the front of it makes it all the more intense. It's, in Latin, it's, it's a way, in Greek and other languages do this as well, but it's a way to intensify a word, to make it more meaningful or more intense. Well... The idea of the resplendence of heaven is the concept is think of the beauty of heaven. Think of it bright and beaming. Think of the glories of heaven from which Christ came. That's what I want you to understand. And to fully appreciate what Christ did for us, we must consider the heights from which he came. We must understand the glory of heaven from which he came that he gave up in order to bring us into that very glory. And to do this, I want you to just consider and contemplate a number of passages. Now, we do not have time 
to work through with any great detail all the passages I want you to consider this morning. We'll, we'll selectively go to a few and talk through a couple of them here and there in order to try and fill out this thought. But I do encourage you to write these down and contemplate them further on your own. But let's go, for instance, to the book of John. In John chapter 3, Jesus is meeting with a rich nobleman, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And in this conversation, Jesus makes an interesting phrase, makes an interesting comment. He says, verse 13, No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now, again, we, we could go on and, and really couch this in its context and, and you know, spend the rest of the hour just exploring this chapter and this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. But all I want you to see for our purposes this morning is simply that what you see is Jesus making this comment that he came down from heaven, that he preexisted his existence on earth, that he left something to come down here to be born, laid in the manger, to walk this earth. But he left something. In fact, if you were to go uh, even just later in the chapter, or earlier in the book, chapter 1 or chapter 17, it describes this, how he, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, right? In chapter 1, verse 1 and following. But one of my favorites uh, to evidence this is in chapter 17. Go to John 17 real quick. And recognize the context. Jesus, in John 17, is, is speaking the high priestly prayer. You recall this? He just finished the upper room discourse. It's one of my favorite sections of the Gospel of John. But Jesus, knowing that he is about to be betrayed, he gives his disciples the final discourse that he, uh, that he gives them. And he does so to try and prepare them for his coming absence. They're about to face life and ministry with his bodily absence. And so... What he does is he tries to teach them those final things they need to know. And that's John, end of chapter 13 and chapter 14, 15, 16. But then you get to chapter 17, and it's often you know, attached or kind of an appendix to that upper room discourse. But in chapter 17, the disciples are actually listening in to a prayer that Jesus prays. And it's marvelous prayer. It is loaded with significance. But what I want you to see is in verse 5... Where Jesus, come, again, this is Jesus, God the Son, praying to God the Father, and he says this. Well, let's actually back up at verse 4. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. In other words, that's a beautiful summary of what Christ has done in his life and ministry. He's glorified the Father while he was on the earth. He says, and I have finished the work which you gave me to do. He did everything that he was commissioned to do up to this point. Now, obviously, there's more to come in the sense of what we sometimes call his passive obedience, that he will go to the cross and he will suffer and die. That hasn't happened yet, according to, you know, when, this, when Jesus prays this prayer. But nonetheless, up to this point, he says, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. But, he says, it goes on in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You remember this verse? It's pretty profound in that Jesus, on the threshold of the suffering he's about to undergo, he longs to be restored to the glory from which he came. In other words, to get through the cross. Now, this is another rabbit trail. I don't have it on your notes, but 
Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says that Christ endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now, we could pause and teach a whole, you know, that's a whole sermon in a sermon of what is the joy that was set before Christ. And there's multiple answers to that. I think in one uh, way, you can put your own name there, right? In other words, what was it that, that was the joy that got Christ through the cross, the suffering of the cross? Well, it was the joy on the other side. What joy? The joy of the prospect of being united with us as his brothers and sisters. In other words, we who were his objects of redemption. But I think we could also put in there the idea of John 17, 5, namely the glory from which he came. What got Jesus through the cross? It was the prospect that on the other side of the cross was glory, particularly the glory of heaven from which he came. He was longing to go back to that place of resplendence, the bright and beaming glory of God from which he came. And so this idea of the resplendent majesty of heaven's glories, it actually appears throughout the scripture. And we won't go to these passages for sake of time, but here are some classic passages that describe this glory. For instance, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is called by God to be a prophet, and he has a vision of God seated on his throne, enthroned in the heavens. And he describes it for us in a few verses. John, or I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Daniel also gives us a glimpse into that glorious throne room. Daniel chapter 7 where it describes him as the son of man that is uh, in heaven, and he is taking right to rule the nations of earth. And it also describes the clouds of heaven, the, the fiery stream that comes from the throne of God. You could, uh, I didn't have this in one of your notes, but you could also put in Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel is a prophet. And he sees this vision of heaven. And I greatly encourage you to. I just don't have time this morning because I hate clocks. But nonetheless, we don't have time to do it. But I would encourage you, just go and read these passages. Read Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, Revelation 4. And these are your classic, there's more, but these are your big ones. These are your classic passages throughout the scripture that describe the throne room of God. And what it would look like and what it will look like as we go there one day. But in summary, heaven might be defined as the place where God most fully makes known his blessed presence. It's the place where God most fully makes known his blessed presence. In other words, we could digress and we could talk about moments in Hebrew history where God made his presence known in limited ways. Some of the more famous ones, at least in my mind, are God descending upon Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. I was a kid. I don't remember how old I was. Maybe, yeah, I think I was high school. Nope, nope. We were living in the old house. I was younger than that. But there, do you remember back when uh, there was this huge fire on Mount Nebo? And it's like, it was this huge fire took up, up most of the mountainside. And there was this massive just pillar of smoke that was rising off of Nebo, like as high, you know, as, high as you can see. And it was, it was a pretty you know, disastrous fire. That was several years ago. But that to me is, is always what I imagine when I read Exodus 19 and I contemplate the glory of God as he descends upon that mountain and it bursts into flame and it says in Exodus 19 that there was a great pillar of smoke rising into the heavens and it describes what it looked like to see the presence of God in a limited but you know albeit limited but nonetheless visible way 
on that very mountain, Moses will climb up, right? You read Exodus 33, Exodus 34. He climbs the mountain and he asks to see God. And God says, what? No man can see me and live. He says, but I will put you in the cleft of the rock, right? I'll cover you with my hand. I'll pass by and you can see the outer fringes, if you will, the hinder parts of my glory. Moses beholds that glory and he comes down from the mountain physically glowing, beaming bright. His face, his countenance is beaming like the sun, you know, reflecting off the moon. We see the idea of Moses seeing the glory of God and reflecting it in his face. And you consider the brightness of what he would have beheld. And yet, that's an earthly manifestation of God's presence. That's just a small sliver. It's a splinter of the overall glory that God has, right? Because he says, no man can see me and live. But nonetheless, when we one day see God in his full glory, as Revelation 22 tells us, we will one day see his face, it says. When that happens, try to imagine the brightness the beauty that we will behold. But more than that, I want you to consider the pleasures that we will enjoy. James chapter 1 and verse 17, for instance, informs us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from God. Yet these gifts are a mere shadow of heaven's realities. In other words, I find it helpful to think of it this way. As you try to picture heaven, we've been doing this a lot with my kiddos recently. Right, Because as we announced to them several weeks ago that grandma had passed away, we definitely had our cry moments. Right, The kids, we had about a half hour of hysteria Right, as the kids tried to understand and grasp that concept. But then they got up the next morning, and it quickly turned into a discussion, a theological discussion of heaven. They started asking, well, what do you, and talking amongst themselves and with us, what do you think grandma's seeing right now? What is she experiencing right now? And it was a marvel to watch how comforting, not only as that is for us as adults, but to watch it in the face of a child when they start imagining that, you know what, there is something beyond this life. And it is glorious. And it was an immense comfort to my children, as it is to me. But I want you to contemplate that here this morning. And when you think about all the good things on earth that you enjoy, times it by infinity, And now you're getting close to the pleasures of heaven. That's what I want you to understand. So consider with me just for a moment the things here and now that give us great joy, meaning, pleasure. Consider the sights, sounds, and senses that you enjoy. For instance, the sounds of great music, a laughing child, falling rain, rolling thunder, a crashing waterfall, a purring kitten. Consider the feel of soft soft velvet, smooth skin, cool water, a warm embrace, a firm grasp, a gentle breeze, rich soil, silky clothes, a full stomach, thirst that has been quenched, a warm fire, a hot drink, or a cool popsicle. Think of an intimate caress. Think of all the sounds and feels but also the sights of what we enjoy. Think of the sight of a pink sunrise, a starlit night, the endless horizon from a mountain peak, one mountain peak to the next. The colors, shapes, and sizes of the ocean deep. My children were marveled by the ocean, 
when we took him for the first time just a month ago. They stood in awe of, of the beauty of it and the power of it. And they had fun. We, we found on the shore these little sea anemones right, that are in the rock, and you touch them, and then they, and they close up. Oh, my kids got a kick out of that. We went and we found a colony of starfish, and one washed up on the seashore, and they were like, oh, and they jumped into savior mode, and they grabbed the little thing, and they whited you know, out in the deep water to put it back on the rock with its colony, and they were like, oh, and they were having a blast. They were touching everything and seeing everything, and it was like sensory overload for little kids, seeing the, the mysteries of the ocean. The pounding waves, I could tell you a story. I got a little bit of time. Uh, my son Keith, we were, because we, we had a great time on vacation, but we went down at one point, there was this uh, beach that you had to, I mean, I, I ripped my sandal climbing down to this beach. Every one of us, I think, fell at some point. It was a really steep hill to get down to this kind of private beach where nobody was at. And we got down there, and it was like this rocky beach, and it was beautiful. And we, we were just exploring up and down this beach where we were there, and the tide was out. So we said, hey, let's climb around that rock and discover the next beach because the tide was low, and we could, you know, just explore. And it was fun. Well, then I noticed that, you know, the tide was coming in. And I'm like, all right, guys, you know, we got to start thinking about heading out of here. So we try to figure out, do we go back the way we came, or do we go around the next bend and go up that, you know, side? So my son Keith, the adventuresome, feeling invincible young man that he is, says, no, no worries, Dad, I got this. And so he runs around this rock to try and find the beach on the other side, only to discover that as he runs around this rock, there's another rock and another rock, and he's not fast enough, and this wave comes in, <laughs> and it picks him up. And, he, and I mean, it was, he experienced the power of this wave as it picked him up, and, you know, and he, and he obviously survived. It wasn't that bad. But to, help, to tell him, or to hear him tell the story, and to help hear his sisters tell the story, he almost died, right? <laughs> but this wave hits him up against this rock. And, you know, so I'm, I'm over here peeking around the corner, and sure enough, he comes booking, you know, out of the, <laughs> just uh, scared to death with a new respect and awe for the ocean waves, you know, he was a little more careful after that. You know, he, he felt a little less invincible. But that's okay. That's a good lesson to learn. But the point is, when you think of the, the, the mysterious caves that we found, the pounding waves, the rolling grass, the fireflies at night. I remember the first kid, time my kids caught fireflies in Minnesota. And they were like, what in the world is this? Right? And they caught them and stuck, stuck them in you know, bottles and jars and tried to keep them overnight. And then they said, oh, well, they got to breathe. And so they poked a hole in the bottle. And then they left the bottle in the truck, and we came out the next day, and well, I don't know where those things went. <laughs> they, they were in the truck somewhere, uh, and then they died, I'm sure. But nonetheless, they were just enamored with fireflies. Uh, handsome men, beautiful women, children, cute puppies, a table spread, a cozy cabin. Think of all the wonderful things we enjoy. Consider the smells or tastes of fresh coffee, cookies baking, peppermint tea, maple glaze, Root beer, you can add your own list, all right? This is just my list because this is the stuff I think about. Uh, fresh rain, a harvested field. I love the you know, fresh-cut grass or, or a, a field that's just been freshly harvested. Sawdust, an old book. I love the smell of an old book. Scented candles, bath bombs, if you're into that sort of thing. Or soaps, sweet perfumes, broiling meat. That's manly, right? You love smelling you know, meat cooking. Delectable strawberries, 
plump grapes, dripping watermelon. You know, I just keep adding to the list. What are the things that you enjoy? But the point I want you to see is that these blessings of earth are merely a shadow of the reality of heaven. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, the Bible says. But nonetheless, it is simply a shadow of the reality of heaven. So if these blessings are derived from God in heaven, then my question is, just consider, what will it be like to be in his direct presence? If we have these things to enjoy, and we are far from the immediate presence of God, then man, can you consider the joy and blessedness that it will be in his immediate presence? The greatest manifestation of God's blessed presence is seen in heaven, where he makes his glory known and where he sits enthroned in the midst of myriads of heavenly beings and creatures and where the redeemed saints will all worship him. This is the realm from which the eternal son came, into which the glorified Christ, disappearing from human view, entered to assume his place on the throne of God as he ascends into glory in Acts chapter 1 at the ascension. And this is what, from which, that which Christ came from, what he went back to, what he longed to go back to. But recognize not only this resplendence of heaven, the joy from which he came, but also in order to understand his grace, you need to understand, secondly, the rigors of the incarnation. What was it that he gave up? Well, that's what we just considered. But what did he step into when he came to save lost humanity? Consider with me the rigors of the incarnation. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 tell us that in order to bring many sons into glory, that's the purpose clause, this tells us why Christ became human, why he entered earthly existence as a man. We call it the incarnation. Incarnation, right? It's a big fancy word. It comes from Latin. It means to be robed in flesh, where the eternal Son of God becomes human. That great and mighty act of redemption is what we call the incarnation, but he did this. He became incarnate. He became human, according to Hebrews 2, verse 9 and 10, in order to bring many sons into glory. In other words, he wants to bring us back to the place from which he came. He wants us to enjoy the wealth and the beauty and the blessedness of heaven's glory. So Jesus humbled himself. He submitted to the rigors of the incarnation. And, and we don't have you know, time to explore this with great degree, but, but consider with me just some basic points. What did Jesus go through? The, what, what were the rigors of the incarnation? Well, first, he was born in a borrowed stable. Luke 2 and verse 7. He was born in a borrowed stable. He was born into a simple family. It tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, that... When Jesus was born, his parents, Mary and Joseph, were taking him to the temple to get him dedicated. But it says they offered the offering of two turtle doves. Now, if you go and do your homework in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 12 teaches us that the two turtle doves was all that was required for a poor family if they couldn't afford to bring a lamb. So what does that tell you about Jesus' earthly family that he was born into? Was he born into wealth? No, he was born into poverty. I mean, they were middle working class, if you will, but they were by no means wealthy. They were a simple family, and that's the way Jesus grew up. He lived, according to Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 58, he lived without earthly wealth. 
On that occasion in Luke chapter 9, Jesus was approached by a man who says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, he makes a famous statement, right? He says, the birds of the air have nests, right? Foxes have holes. They have dens to go climb into and go to sleep. But the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was a homeless man. He had nowhere to lay his head. He went from village to village, living off of the graciousness of others and his own ability to work here and there. But he gave his life to the service of others, and he had no earthly wealth. But top that, on top of all of that, he lived a life of rejection. In John chapter 15 and verse 20, as well as verse 25, in that upper room discourse, Jesus warned his disciples. He says, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. The slave is not greater than his master. Jesus lived a life of rejection. The most powerful people of the day plotted his demise and got him crucified on a cross, which is perhaps the other thing that we ought to consider. And we could, again, this deserves its own lecture. But for sake of time, I'll simply point you to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, where Paul, describing the glories of heaven from which Christ came and the suffering that he endured, he, he appended on with the final phrase. He says, he died even the death of the cross. And you've heard me perhaps elaborate on this before, or my father, but the, the cross has an interesting history when you, when you study the, the history of crucifixion. And it was probably invented by the Persians. It was disseminated by the Greeks, but it was perfected by the Romans. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they became the best at it. The whole purpose of crucifixion was to deter rebellion. So it was to be public. It was to be humiliating. It was to be painful. It was to be enduring. In other words, a long death. We have records of people living days on a cross before they succumb to the elements. And this, this idea was so gruesome right, in Roman history. In fact, you could not even say crux. Crux is the Latin word for cross. It was the four-letter word that you don't utter in polite company. You don't talk about it. It's the crux, the cross. You don't talk about it. In fact, Roman citizens, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified they, because they considered that the uh, Roman citizen was too noble to go through that sort of death. The only exception to that is if you were a traitor to Rome, then you could be crucified as a traitor. But Jesus not only submitted to a life of pennilessness and service towards others, a life of rejection by his own family in many cases. But he also submitted to the most gruesome death that history has ever invented, crucifixion. And he did all of it willingly. And this is, we're just scratching the surface when it comes to the rigors of the incarnation and what Christ submitted to in order to bring us into glory. But lastly, I want you to consider that third element of the verse. That Christ, though he was rich, he became poor. Why? That we might be made rich. I want you to consider for the remaining few minutes that we have together this third and final point, namely the riches of our inheritance. The Bible is crystal clear that Jesus did all of this. He endured the incarnation. He left the glories of heaven so that he could be able to say, according to Matthew 25 and verse 34, come you my blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
or as he says earlier in that same chapter, enter the joy of your Lord. Christ came to suffer and to die and rise again, to forgive us of our sins so that we could be the part of the many sons, quote-unquote, that are brought into glory. He is looking forward to that day where he says, enter the joy of your Lord. Come, you my blessed, right, the blessed of my Father. Enter into the kingdom that has been prepared for you. And this kingdom is marvelous. In fact, let me just read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. I love the way Paul puts it here, which he's actually quoting the book of Isaiah, by the way. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul says this, As it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. In other words, the glories of this coming kingdom are far beyond anything this world has ever known. As we said before, chronicle the sights, sounds, tastes, smells of all the blessedness of earth, and it pales in comparison to the blessings of heaven. He says, we have never heard or seen or even conceived in our mind the blessedness that awaits those who love God. That's saying something. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that one of God's express purposes is to call us, quote, to his own glory and excellence, end quote. Jude, the author of the little book of Jude, will put it this way, that at the climax of history, the climax of our redemption, is that we will dwell continually, quote, in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We will dwell in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's the inheritance that awaits us. And this idea is prolific through the New Testament. We don't have the time to work through each of these passages. But Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. On our own, we're not going to make it to this glory. We have sinned and fallen short of that glory. But that glory is the destiny of all who are in Christ. Romans 8.18 tells us that. Romans 9.23 tells us that. That we will one day, if we're believers in Christ, we will one day inherit that glory. We will be, you know, the gates of heaven will be thrown open wide and we will be invited into God's very presence. The place, the definition of the place of blessing in the universe. We will be granted access into the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 43, revels in this, as well as 2 Corinthians 3.18, where it describes the glory that we behold and we are being transformed into, the glory of which we will one day participate. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 is another good one. They're all good. And there's, I mean, like I said, I quoted the Hebrews 2.10 earlier. He's bringing many sons into glory. 1 Peter 5.1 is Peter saying that he is an inheritor of the coming glory. The New Testament is just prolific with this idea that we will one day be part of that if you're a believer in Christ. So as you consider this gracious gift of Christ, he who is rich yet became poor so that we might become rich, and we contemplate the, the wealth of this inheritance awaiting us, then there are three big ideas that you need to walk away with. What's the so what 
of all of this truth, as we ponder the glory of heaven, the wealth from, and the beauty, the resplendence from which Christ came, to which he returned, also to which he invites us, that we will one day go if we're a believer in Christ. Well, number one, you need to be sure that you will enter that kingdom. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7 that there will be many who stand before him in that day saying, Lord, Lord, you know the verse, have we not? And they roll out their resume. Cast out demons in your name, done mighty many, many mighty works and miracles in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. There will be those who are denied entrance into this kingdom. Why? Because they did not know Christ. They did not trust Christ. They did not look to him for his saving grace. Again, that same point is illustrated in Matthew 25, 34, the sheep and the goat's judgment, where Jesus says that he is the one who decides who comes in. And he says, come, you blessed of my father, enter the kingdom that has been prepared for you. But then there's those on his left to which he says, depart from me to outer darkness, where there will be gnashing of teeth, where the worm dies not. In other words, the the Bible is crystal clear that there is this coming kingdom, this place of blessedness, but not all will enter it. Only those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for their soul's salvation will enter that kingdom. So if that is true, and that's the climax of all of history, then that's the first main application. Be sure you will enter that kingdom. Don't just assume. Paul Peter says, make your calling and election sure. But secondly, if all of this is true and this glory awaits us, then be motivated to store up treasure there instead of here. Jesus makes a big deal of this, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and rust can corrupt and destroy or thieves can break through and steal, but lay up treasure in heaven. And where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jesus gives us some sound advice. I think that's how he lived. He gave up the treasures of earth. Why? Because he came from the treasures of heaven and he knew where he was going back. And he's inviting us to live like he lived, to live for the then, the eternity, not the now, which includes not only a storing up treasure in heaven, but thirdly, this third application point is be willing to serve and endure suffering because nothing will compare to that glory. Paul makes a big deal of this in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4, where he describes the hardship that he himself was enduring for the cause of Christ. How much Paul gave up for the cause of Christ and the the gospel. And yet Paul informs us with absolute certainty. He says, guys, whatever we give up now, it's worth it. He says the exceeding weight of glory that is coming, the eternal glory of heaven, as he puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, is nothing. This, this, This light affliction that we deal with now is nothing to be compared with that exceeding eternal weight of glory. And that thought that comforts my children because they're thinking about where grandma is is also what ought to motivate them to live life for the glory of God. It's what comforts them. It's what helps give them a steadfast, no-quit attitude that when life gets hard, it's okay 
Because life is not forever. Eternal life is forever. So we can put up with anything down here. It doesn't ultimately matter. Because one day we'll be there. And this will be nothing more than a blip on the radar. And we will be living in the joy of our Lord. Who says, enter into the blessedness of the kingdom that has been prepared for you from before the foundations of the world. I don't know about you, but that's something worth living for, I think. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text. These wonderful concepts laid out before us of the wealth of heaven, the glory of heaven. the rigors of the incarnation that the Lord Jesus so willingly submitted to, that he underwent so that he might, as the author of Hebrews says, bring many sons into glory. And he who became poor for us did so that we might become rich, that we might enter into the joy of our Lord that we may enter that wonderful kingdom that has been prepared for us. The beauty and blessedness of which we cannot even fully imagine on this side of it, but we will one day experience. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your blessing as we attempt to understand these things to live in light of them, to be sure that we will enter that kingdom, to be motivated to store up treasure there instead of here and be willing to serve and endure suffering on this side of heaven because nothing is going to compare to that coming glory. Lord Jesus, help us to live in light of this, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.